This is not for you. I got it! When I first heard about Dave being trapped in a maze. One, two, three, four! I built a labyrinth. Can you believe it? Dave is trapped in a cardboard maze in his living room and he can't get out. Welcome to Dave Made a Minute, the podcast where a whole bunch of us are exploring the film Dave Made a Maze one minute at a time. The twist. Many of the participants have never seen the film. Some don't even know what film they're sampling. They get their minutes and they tackle them as they see fit. Here's your host from the Groundhog Day Project and Michael Myers Minute, Robert Black. Minute 37. Gordon fronts for the camera and Dave wants to keep going. To tackle Minute 37, we have Robert Black of the Groundhog Day Project. You come home, there's a giant maze in your living room. You're like, what the? There's a giant maze in my living room. I've heard of people rearranging the furniture, but this is wackadoodle crazy. This doesn't make any sense. Did I promise? Did I promise to my It's like a fucking cocktail party in here. I get a few words from you before you go. Dave did not make a maze. Let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. In all these various minutes covered by various podcasters, some elements have been left aside. A little bit of the bystander effect, I think, and participants being a little too Gordon and not enough Dave. You'll get that later. Notably, I don't think anyone has really talked about the labyrinth, or the Minotaur, as they exist in Greek myth. The Minotaur is basically the queen's bastard, banished by the king and confined to the labyrinth. Let me backtrack. Minos wanted the Cretan throne, and he prayed to Poseidon for a gift that would prove him worthy. Poseidon gave him a white bull, and Minos was supposed to sacrifice the bull to him. Which seems like a weird setup, makes Poseidon seem a little bloodthirsty. He should have just demanded that Minos sacrifice his firstborn son or something, that's more godly. Anyway, Minos is like, this bull is gorgeous, I'm keeping it, and he sacrifices another instead. Poseidon, he ain't going for that. He curses Minos' wife, Pasiphae, to fall in love with the bull, and Pasiphae, being the resourceful girl she is, turns to Daedalus. Daedalus is a smart guy. He's going to build the labyrinth later, and if you buy into Ovid's version in the Metamorphoses, the labyrinth was so complex that Daedalus himself almost got lost inside. Sound familiar? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Pasiphae goes to Daedalus. And he makes her a nice cow costume. Actually, a wooden cow she could get inside, not some cheap cloth number like in Top Secret. Pasiphae gets into the fake cow and hooks up with the bull, as one does. And she gets pregnant. Yada, yada, yada. A kid comes out deformed. And in House of Leaves, which has been mentioned in this podcast before and should be again, Mark Z. Danielewski covers a nice take on the Minotaur in a struck-through footnote. He writes, or rather, Zampano writes, quote, at the risk of stating the obvious, no woman can mate with a bull and produce a child. Recognizing this simple scientific fact, I am led to a somewhat interesting suspicion. King Minos did not build the labyrinth to imprison a monster, but to conceal a deformed child. His child. While the Minotaur has often been depicted as a creature with the body of a bull with the torso of a man, centaur-like, the myth describes the Minotaur as simply having the head of a bull and the body of a man. Or in other words, a man with a deformed face. I believe pride would not allow Minos to accept that the heir to the throne had a horrendous appearance. Consequently, he dissolved the right of ascension by publicly accusing his wife Pasiphae of fornicating with a male bovine. End quote. Whatever Minos wanted hidden, he called on Daedalus to design a place for the child, and the Cretan labyrinth was born. There was an older one in Egypt, but the Cretan labyrinth is the one more of us know. Pliny the Elder describes the labyrinth in Natural History. Quote, the Daedalus took this Egyptian labyrinth for the model of the labyrinth which he constructed in Crete, there can be no doubt. 
Though he only reproduced the hundredth part of it, that portion namely which encloses circuitous passages, windings, and inextricable galleries which lead to and fro. We must not, comparing this last to what we see delineated on our mosaic pavements, or to the mazes formed in the fields for the amusement of children, suppose it to be a narrow promenade along which we may walk for many miles together. But we must picture to ourselves a building filled with numerous doors and galleries, which continually mislead the visitor, bringing him back, after all his wanderings, to the spot from which he first set out. End quote. King Minos would keep the Minotaur alive within the labyrinth by sacrificing young men and women of Athens, who he had conquered. In a separate story, the labyrinth is also equated to the dancing ground that Daedalus built for Ariadne, Minos's daughter. The combined version, young men and women were sent over from Athens and they would dance together in the labyrinth, awaiting their doom. Like Greg and Bryn back in Minute 26, or the Flemish tourists later, if our heroes had not yet solved the riddle of this labyrinth. Dave's maze is influenced by more than just myth, though. To get ahead of ourselves for a moment, in minute 52, Dave will suggest, a la Return of the Jedi, in my mind anyway, quote, Traditionally, if there's like a structural weakness, it would be at the center, end quote. And in case Tierney and Mark don't get into it, putting a chrysalis at the center of the maze will be sort of a backward move. A chrysalis is a protective layer on the outside that allows for transformation within. The maze is Dave's chrysalis. Though we don't necessarily get that much of a sense that he has been fundamentally transformed by this experience, or that his relationship with Annie will be transformed either. I love the kitchen counter sequence from minutes 59 to 62 and what it suggests about not just Annie and Dave's relationship, but romantic relationships more universally. But even all those layers of costumes allow for the possibility that the final product to any given point might still be just a costume, dictated by tradition, dictated by society, dictated by one's own personal expectations. You in a relationship is not the same you that existed before or will exist after. You can't step into the same river twice and all that. But then, also, you watching this movie is not the same you that existed before or will exist after. In A Tale of Two Mazes, a sensory ethnography of choice, perception, and getting hopelessly lost, Marlon McGuire suggests a link between historical and mythological mazes and modern theme park horror nights haunted house mazes and by extension, I would argue, a connection to the rise of escape rooms. And she argues, quote, The sheer possibility of getting lost in the multicursal maze or merely being subject to the maze maker's whims in the unicursal maze pushes the body into an unusual space. Navigating through a maze involves both mind and body, and indeed unifies the two. As Penelope Reed Dube states in the idea of the labyrinth from classical antiquity through the Middle Ages, quote, what you see depends on where you stand, and thus, at one and the same time, labyrinths are single, there is one physical structure, and double. They simultaneously incorporate order and disorder, clarity and confusion, unity and multiplicity, artistry and chaos. End quote. End quote. <laughs> I'm reminded of that moment in Labyrinth when Sarah realizes there's an entryway right in front of her, after the worm tells her, what Hogla has already told her, not to take anything for granted. The visual angle makes one wall blend with another, and the opening is not immediately obvious, but only from the camera angle you have for the reveal of the opening. As she was walking by such an opening, realistically, it would have been much more obvious than when she is standing right in front of it, looking at it directly. Like that forced perspective room back in minutes 31 and 32. The camera angle makes the illusions work for us, the audience. The movie breaks the fourth wall in involving us in the character's confusion. We are subject to the filmmaker's whims, and while our main characters make few choices as to where to go, 
suggesting that Dave's maze is unicursal. They don't run into the Flemish tourists until they have split the party and Gordon baits the Minotaur. So Dave's maze is multicursal, like the mind of a creative with no clear direction in his life. Watching the film, it's like a horoscope or a tarot card, that notion of a lack of direction or that divide in his relationship with Annie. These are generalized just enough that we can all relate. You don't have to have an artistic bent to understand the feeling of not being able to get done what you need to get done to be the person you want to be. You don't have to be in a particularly troubled relationship to understand how unilateral growth in a relationship can push two people apart. And I'm nearly 10 minutes into this recording, and I haven't even gotten into the content of the minute itself, into documentaries, into rhyming, into The Princess Bride, into Hollywood cliches, into Gordon's one-liners. But I get ahead of myself. We begin minute 37 with the tail end of the T on the end of apartment as Annie pointed out that even if they get out of the maze, there's still a minotaur to deal with. Dave. Annie makes a great point. It's a temporary fix. It's not going to keep it out forever. We are angled on Dave, the blue towel old fort trick behind him. Cameraman and boom operator are to our left. Annie and Gordon to the right. Harry is all but off the screen. Close on the right, we can see the edge of his sleeve. Second four. Gordon makes a show of jumping in front of cameraman. Cut to cameraman's POV through camera as some of that stylized old-school video game music cuts in. Gordon's face looms large in the frame. Dave looks on over his shoulder. Gordon, it's time to make some motherfucking bull burgers. Dave, kill it. Second ten, we're out of cameraman's camera. Gordon crosses the screen in the foreground, leaving Dave alone in a medium shot. Dave, great, good idea. Um, but about the maze itself. Second fourteen, smash cut to cameraman's view again as Gordon jumps between Dave and the camera. Dave isn't playing to cameraman. Dave is playing to the, well, the camera. The film's camera to us. Gordon has gone well past his freakout from minute 17, and he is embracing the fantasy of the maze. The image on his t-shirt is, of course, gaining more detail as Gordon embraces his role within the maze. Meanwhile, the film needs Dave to leave, needs the labyrinth to be solved. Gordon is hamming it up when he should be getting serious. Gordon, well, I guess it's time to take out the recycling. And we go back to Dave. Dave, another great option from Gordon. Thank you. Or how about we finish it? Second 26, angle on Annie, who cannot believe what she just heard. Dave, right guys? Pull back to the long shot as Dave bends down to that bag we've heard about in previous minutes. Dave, because I've got all these supplies, we've got tape, I've got so much cardboard. We get a nice cutaway to Harry and Boom Operator, with some great lighting. Boom Operator is all in shadow, doing his job like the consummate professional that he is. Harry, half in shadow, half in light, adjusts his glasses. He's making his movie. And I find myself pulled toward they shoot movies, don't they? The making of Mirage. Where director Tom Paulson gets so stuck in getting his movie made that his life starts to unravel. And he's talking to the documentarians following him at one point and rather soberly points out that no matter what happens with his life, with his film, they get their movie. And as Harry adjusts his glasses, I also hear in the back of my movie-going brain Harry's inner monologue in the voice of Ivan Drago. If he dies, he dies. Annie. Dave, we are not building more. Gordon. Yeah, this sounds like work. I have a feeling that is not Annie's reasoning. Dave. It is work, but think about the reward. Annie. Dave. Dave. No, you don't understand. Instead of trying to defeat the maze, we've got to complete the maze. The Princess Bride is where this scene takes me now. Random bits of rhyming in a situation that doesn't call for it. Something this movie does so well. 
mediate the drama and the horror with silliness. Jane loses her head and we get red yarn and streamers. Greg gets impaled and we get spray string. This is, as far as anyone who isn't Dave knows, a life or death situation. It's debatable if he gets it at all at this point. He'd learned last minute that people have died, but he saw none of those deaths. He has had a hand transformed into cardboard. And that's a spoiler for minute 43. He's still got a glove covering that hand in this minute. But he might as well be a child playing at fantasy, rather than a 30-year-old. Remember, back in minute 3, the animated opening credits, the titular activity came right after Dave glanced at his ant farm. Which we never see in any live-action scene, by the way. A little aside, because this is how my mind works when researching stuff, the first ant farm, or formicarium, was exhibited at the Exposition Universelle in Paris in 1900 by entomologist and polymath Charles Janet. He never got a patent on it, but it did earn him a promotion to Chevalier of the Legion of Honor. So he had that going for him. Anybody want a peanut? Is a great way to cut some tension, by the way. Gordon. We're not just doing that because it rhymes. And it occurs to me now that the rhyming here is like a riddle. And what good is a labyrinth without a riddle or two to go with its booby traps and its dead ends? Who is offering the solution, though? Is it Dave? Is it the Minotaur speaking through Dave? Is it the maze itself? Is there a difference? Gordon was all in a moment ago, but here he hesitates because running from a Minotaur he can do. Fighting a Minotaur with his friends and a film crew, he probably figures the odds are in their favor. But building something? Gordon probably put more effort into grooming his beard today than he did doing anything else. Adventure sounds exciting. It's that urge to rise up from the mundane. You know, get into a maze, get into an escape room. But work, even on something like a cardboard maze, is still work. Dave slash the maze continues with his riddle. Dave. Well, then, how about instead of trying to diminish it, he pauses and he absentmindedly rolls the edge of the cardboard he's got in his hands, and if not for his height and his beard stubble, he could be a little kid, asking for five more minutes to read before bed, or to stay up late to watch the movie we rented from the warehouse, or to watch Riptide, or Murder, She Wrote, or... Sorry. Projecting. Dave, you guys help me finish it. And Annie's frustration here is not only quite palpable, but understandable. But in the middle of this sequence, she too seems like she could be a child, not getting her way. It makes for an interesting dynamic and paves the way for the rest of the film. Dave needs to grow up. Annie needs to... Child down. Harry, cameraman, boom operator, they just need to keep doing their jobs. And Gordon needs to step up. But, at least temporarily, they all need to embrace the fantasy. And maybe it isn't fair to call it childish. In the end, they will all return to the real world with real responsibilities. Well, they won't all return. Spoilers. But, and maybe this is the point, or a point, if not the point, their lives afterward will be the better for it. In Hollywood terms, events like these are life-changing. Hell, it's like a story is hardly worth telling in Hollywood anymore if the lead isn't in the middle of a turning point, because the exciting events cannot be the story. A few examples. The Shallows. Blake Lively's Nancy can't just be on vacation and get trapped by a shark. No, she has to be still dealing with her mother's death and considering dropping out of medical school. Don't breathe. Jane Levy's Rocky can't just be a thief who gets in over her head with her fellow thieves. No, she has to be desperate for cash on one last job, and Hollywood loves the idea of one last job or one more day to retirement to get her and her little sister away from an abusive household. And my go-to, though it's a few years older, 
behind enemy lines. Owen Wilson's Burnett can't just be an officer shot down and fending for himself without the proper equipment to get back to his ship. No, he has to be thinking about quitting the Navy and somehow finding some dead bodies that are never commented on makes him realize how much he loves the Navy. Hollywood wants a lifetime finished between the space of two frames. Of course, this isn't that. Dave Made a Maze is not inherently Hollywood. Dave's struggle is not singular, is not necessarily life-changing. We don't get a cheap aftermath because this story doesn't want a cheap aftermath. This story wants an aftermath that we make for ourselves in our heads as we leave the theater or get off the couch. As Ruby Dahl writes of the house on Ashtree Lane in House of Leaves, quote, The house, the halls, and the rooms all become the self, collapsing, expanding, tilting, closing, but always in perfect relation to the mental state of the individual, end quote. Film works the same. Dave Made a Maze works the same. Gordon steps up, sort of, and only half-heartedly. Gordon, how about instead of rhyming? He pauses. Cut to Dave. Back to Gordon. And you know, it's not like Gordon had something better to do today. Gordon, fine whining. Annie starts to reject all this. Annie, no, guys. And the minute ends. This minute is grounded in fantasy, grounded in myth, but hints at so many real beats when it comes to relationships, when it comes to creativity, when it comes to finding fun in the everyday. And then there's Harry and cameraman and boom operator recording it for a different level of reality and occasionally reminding us that what we're seeing is not real. The characters are not really in any danger. They are actors playing parts. Say see nespas un peep. But as a published communication scholar, I gotta point out that parasocial relationships, our connections to fictional characters, are healthy. And as folklorist Jan Harold Brumden often says, the truth never gets in the way of a good story. Or take it the other way. A good story never gets in the way of the truth. Every time this movie puts something between us and the reality of the situation, for me at least, it makes it feel even more real. I am reminded finally, before I go, of Scott McCloud's understanding comics. When he writes, specifically regarding cartooning, quote, As we continue to abstract and simplify our image, we are moving further away from the real face of the photo. And when we abstract an image through cartooning, and I would add filmmaking, we're not so much eliminating details as we are focusing on specific details. By stripping down an image to its essential meaning, an artist can amplify that meaning in a way that realistic art can't. End quote. Among the many reviews I have read of Dave Made a Maze, only one that I can recall suggests that the lack of explanation is a negative. The lack of explanation, the refusal to some specificity. We have characters that are credited as cameraman and boom operator. We have Flemish tourists picnicking in a cardboard labyrinth. And at some point, you have to see that the less real it seems at a glance, the more real its details are. Some people in our lives are better identified by title than by name. Identified by their role because they play their part. Maybe we never know any more about them than that. Some people are just passers-by, tourists, living their lives oblivious to the dangers and goings-on around them. That is life. And I'll leave you with this. Only historians will ever know just how much closer to reality this motion picture has brought us all. And then I could probably disarm all the traps. And then we could, we could finish this maze. Who is with me? That was me, Robert Black of Michael Myers Minute, taking on Minute 38 of Dave Made a Maze. I will be back next time on Dave Made a Minute, taking on Minute 39. I will try not to be so wordy. Thank you for listening to Dave Made a Minute. 
Intro dialogue snippets were taken from Dave Made a Maze, directed by Bill Watterson, written by Bill Watterson and Steve Sears, and produced by John Charles Meyer. Intro music is Diversion by The Equals, featured in the film Dave Made a Maze, and Life Cycle of a Match by Parvis Decree. Outro music is Leaving This Godforsaken Place and Her Presence is Strong Here by Parvis Decree. Dave Made a Minute is a production of Lemming Drop Studio and all other featured podcast producers. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Dave Made a Minute. If you like what you hear, throw us a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, and check out all of the participants' other shows to spread the love around. Again, thank you for listening. As long as we're all working together, this is going to be fine. It's going to be great. I need you to notify the families of everyone who died here today. Totally. Wait, what? <laughs>